Today, at the SDGI Directors in Dialogue, Director Sir Alan Parker discusses his work with fellow director Derville Lodge. And it is a great honour to have Sir Alan Parker as my lead player. And um, so, uh, uh, Sir Alan is not a man that needs uh, much introduction, but he definitely deserves a fanfare. And uh, at the risk of, um, of brevity, uh, bordering offence, and not typical of an Irish woman, I shall reduce your, your career and life to a few um, crucial facts. <laughs> Um, uh, Sir Alan is a director with 19 credits, uh, his first feature being Bugsy Malone back in 1975. Uh, Sir Alan is a writer with nine credits, the first of that being a TV film called Melody in 1971. And Sir Alan is a producer with five credits, the last one curiously titled I Hate My Job. So, um, uh, that wasn't me. Uh, that wasn't, uh, I really hate my job. So his uh, numerous accolades for his work include... 19 BAFTAs, 10 Golden Globes, and 10 Oscars. So he is a man not only of great quantity, but obviously remarkable quality. Um, Some here may be interested to know that uh, he is um, a supporter of Arsenal. And I noticed uh, in in some of his drawings that uh, the manager there gets a credit. And um, I was particularly interested to know that uh, and learn... um, that he is quite a brilliant cartoonist, very acerbic and funny, and I'm hoping he will doodle on my copy that if I name drop Maria Doyle Kennedy, who is a major fan of his, gave me after a job I did with her. Um, However, um, Sir Alan, my overriding intrigue and admiration for you is that unlike many filmmakers that your work has, you've not been bound by any particular film genre. And uh, you've directed everything from musicals to hard-hitting political dramas. And you've managed uh, a strong blend of, kind of both strong story and elegant flair. That means it looks good and it has something to say. So with that, I'm going to start straight away with a film, uh, an opening sequence of Mississippi uh, Burning, which uh, you made in 1988, which displays extraordinary technique, style and substance and, um, and we'll talk through the detail of that afterwards. So roll it there, Simon. Sir Alan. Uh, we're in no doubt as to um, uh, what territory we're in, um, in the story. That opening sequence is three pages on the script and seven and a half minutes long. So based on that, your features need only be 50 pages. Uh. <laughs> it's long, it's beautiful, it's seductive, it's tense, it's frightening, it's shocking, and we're hooked. I'm very struck by the rhythm of it and how it, how it uh, develops and it mounts in its, in its tension, its beauty and its, the ugliness of its, of its subject matter. Can you take us through that process of how you built that? Because that all wasn't on the page. Well, when... Uh the very first thing, just to go back, the very first thing I ever wrote was this film called uh, Melody. I didn't direct it, and uh, Warris Hussein directed it, and uh, it was it was an okay film. But uh, for the, the first fifteen minutes were pretty dire, and then fifteen minutes into it, the young girl in the 
this is a roundabout way of answering the question. The young girl in the story, she buys, uh, she, she gives some old clothes to a rag and bone man, and she, for it, she gets a, a goldfish. And from then on, the film is actually pretty good. And uh, the producer, David Putnam, said to me, he said, you know, as it was the first thing I'd ever written, he said, uh, he said just a little tip, he said, in, in the future, he said, try and get to the goldfish a little bit sooner, because uh, preferably the, when you you know, begin a film. And, and I always think that the opening sequence of, of any film, the audience is sitting there in judgment of you and they make a judgment of what they're about to see for the next hour and a half, two hours, very quickly in that. And so you really should present your credentials as a filmmaker as fast as you can. I've always gone by that. And this is a particularly good example in so much as um, the whole of this story obviously is based on this murder, which was obviously a true story. This is the murder of Shwana Goodman and Cheney in Mississippi. And uh, it was, uh, as a piece of filmmaking, it was... um, it's interesting in so much as it was filmed over four nights but the first, the early stuff was actually just done at the end of our days, we did a normal day's work and then we filmed um, a magic hour for the early wider shots of the cars and then we shot two nights of real nights for the more, for the interior and the more dramatic stuff But uh, And it, you did that to give it a particular atmosphere or to avoid a major light or? Really yeah, I mean in the end you know you see that in Mississippi, you know, I found these beautiful switchback roads, which is a very graphic kind of way to begin the whole thing because you see the car, then it disappears, and then you see it again, mm. and then immediately you see, you know, the threat, which is the people who are following who are there, and then suddenly they're not there, and then they are right in your face, mm. which can be quite scary. And uh, to do that, you really had to do that. You couldn't really like that, mm. so obviously it had to be done at Magic Hour. So all those wider shots and the wider shots of the, of the, the cars after that uh, to set up the actual, you know, the geography of, the, of who's chasing who was all done at, um, in Magic Hour. And then the, the nitty-gritty of the dramatic stuff, the interiors and everything, were all obviously lit and shot at night. But it was cut without music. I think now I might cut it to music. And it was I, cut I, without, so the music, yeah. that was going to be my next question about your use of music. Because yeah. in, in this particular, obviously you're famous for your treatment of and, w- and with music, but in this particular film, you use two different musical approaches, both dramatic yeah. score, which kicks in there at about three and a half minutes, that you know, the, the, brings the tension, and then this stunning, very beautiful gospel music. I mean, was that again on the script, or is that something that evolved? It was... Um, no, the gospel music was... Uh, uh, I had another piece of gospel music by, which I thought was actually better and more powerful. But the, pe- the uh, we went to Washington for the this it was, uh, three black singers, got, uh, very political singers, and I wanted their music. And I forget the name of them now. And uh, I showed it to them, and they were they hated the film, as a lot of uh, black Americans did. It's fair to say, and a lot didn't, but a lot yeah. did. And a lot of it that upset them is to see, particularly when you see an aggressive, politically aggressive activist black Americans disliked it the most because they hate to see this as a white man's struggle when they think of it obviously as a black person's struggle, the whole of the civil rights thing. So they thought this was, you know, two white guys going down to solve a crime in Mississippi, which actually is the truth of it and also the reason why the film got made because at that point in time the studio wouldn't make a film if the heroes were black. Mm. But uh, 
So they didn't like it. So I had to choose the other piece, which is on it now, mm. which uh, turned out to be, you know, in, in a way more powerful. But I did prefer the other piece when I, I was very upset that I couldn't use their music. But the rhythms and everything, first of all, I'm very lucky, and I, two of my sons happen to be musicians. And so <clears throat> they often uh, do tracks for me, and I have like a toolkit method which I have, which is I, have, I lay things together myself. Uh, when during the the editing period, I have to say that that, uh, that you know Jerry Hambling, who's now retired, who's my editor, who cut fourteen of my films. So I always said the moment he retired that my film my career is finished anyway. So I might as well give up now. But uh, he is he, he that's him. That is that's the absolute skill of an editor. That you know I would guide and I shot every frame and and I had absolutely idea of how it would be. But it was it was given its rhythms and given its drama as much by him being a brilliant editor I have to say and when and I because I've worked so much for him, with him for over you know 30 odd years it's you know I completely trust to give him this material mm. there are other times you know which we'll talk about later with regards to the commitments where I would do an entire musical number which he really constructed mm. Mm. Uh, and without me no storyboard no just in my head thinking how it might go together but in the end he would be doing that and he he created those rhythms and he cut that cold, I say cold, without music. And then uh, my son Alexander, uh, who's the, of my two musical sons, laid all these rhythms that he'd done for me. And then we laid it against it and then he readjusted it to that, to the music, Jerry the editor. And uh, so that it actually, you know, you have to do it that way around. And then Trevor Jones was brought in as the composer of the whole thing. And then he... He copied these rhythms, okay. and uh, and then Jerry had to adjust it again. Okay. It's only a frame or here or there, but it's yes, a matter but of being. Yes, it does make a difference. You can feel yourself being. Well, if you ask a composer, a composer always think that they're going to actually do it exactly. You know, when I did, uh, I did Angel Heart, and uh, I went to Rome to talk to um, uh, Morricone, Ennio Morricone, the great, great, great composer, and he, I'd laid temp music all over the film. And he said that uh, it was insulting. He couldn't do it if he couldn't start from scratch. Mm. Whereas, you know, which is fair enough because they always think that they can actually, musically, to the moment, to the beat, uh, actually cut it properly. And it doesn't matter how brilliant you are. And, you know, on Angela's Ashes, I had the great composer of all time, which is John Williams. And John, uh, you know, he can't get it right. Technically, it's not possible for him to strike up the band and... That, you know, he's, however wonderful and genius and brilliant as he is, he won't be as great as Jerry by taking a frame out here and a frame out there mm-hmm. to actually get it exactly right. So mm-hmm. all I'm saying is it's an organic process. It's always being improved upon. So that, that cut went through like many, many, many lives. Okay. And, um, I mean, something that, again, is a, a characteristic of your work is you tend to work with the same core group of people all the time, your editor, your DOP, is that to create a comfort zone around you so at least I know that bit works and then the unknown of working with cast or, yep. or whatever, it gives you the energy and the headspace to, to, to deal with that. Yeah, um, absolutely that. I mean, I think making any movie is, is hard. Really, really hard. I don't care who the director is. It's so difficult. Mm. And not only is it it's physically hard, it's mentally and emotionally hard and it goes on for a long time. And 
in order to be sharp for all that period of time, and often, you know, often nearly all of my films have been away from home. I always envied, you know, the old Hollywood directors who would uh, get up in the morning in their Bel Air house and drive over the hill to the studios, <laughs> and they'd, you know, finish work at 5.30 and then go home. Yeah. Whereas I spent most of my life living in some horrible uh, holiday inn in Mississippi, you know, and uh, all the juries in Dublin. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, it, you're away from home. And there's something about that being away from home, which is why you want to get it done and get it over with. But uh, it's, uh, it, is, it is difficult. And, and my point being that if you're going to be, go through that nightmare, which it is a wonderful nightmare, um, you've got to be with people that, one, you think are really good to make you better, and two, to be with people who are not going to make it worse for you because the actors certainly will. Okay. Well, this, and, uh, you, that, that space is allowed. Um, I mean, it is uh, when you, in my experience, sometimes uh, you do have to work with a new DOP or editor for different, yep. for different reasons, and it's always frightening. And a bad experience is just the most, the most, mm-hmm. uh, most horrible thing. But um, when it goes well, do you ever, I, I don't know, do you, would you find yourself, it's like, it's almost like, God, I would have missed that opportunity if I hadn't forced myself out of my, my comfort zone. It's like uh, the boy or the girl that you could have dated, that yeah. if you'd only, if you'd only um, you know, stepped out of your comfort zone. Do you, do, you, do you have that concern that, should I push myself further, should I, or just don't look a gift horse in the mouth? I think that, no, so you make a good point, and I think that sometimes, um, you know, you can be challenged by by people because you haven't, you're not that comfortable with them. I mean, in fact, Peter Bijou, who, who is not, not a difficult, he's a DOP, he won the Oscar for that film. Um, and Jerry, the editor, didn't. Jerry was nominated, but he didn't. He won the American Editor's Award, but he didn't win the Oscar, which is very unusual because they normally go together. But uh, Peter Bijou, I hadn't, I've made uh, a number of films, but he's not done. He, I've done many more films with Michael Saracen, for instance, than I have with Peter Bijou. And, and uh, Bijou would probably wasn't my first choice to do this. Mm. And he can, you know, he's, Bijou is is a uh, is not confrontational or anything. He's very laid back, and he can be very irritating because of that. Whereas other directors of photography uh, can be quite aggressive about what they think with regards to what you're doing. Isn't, isn't something that I'm comfortable with. You know. And do you, because I know the system is different between American and Britain, is your, is your relationship closer with your DOP or with your operator? And how much space do you allow them? I mean, how prepared are you? Do you storyboard everything? I mean, I've seen quite an amount of, of storyboarding by you. Or do you leave space to, for it to evolve on the day, let the DOP or operator bring... <clears throat> something to the table no I mean I don't do storyboards I do lots of drawings you know scribbles mm. but not you know I mean Spielberg as you know has this bible and then they open up the page that day and then everybody does that shot <laughs> those storyboards are not drawn by Spielberg they're drawn by a professional storyboard artist so you know in a way it's not I always think that when you've got a screenplay whether it's your script or, or, or you've worked on it with another writer you really ought to have the film in the back of your head before you begin it will never be the same film but you should, roughly it should be the same mm-hmm. and the difference between the good film and the bad film is the one that's closest to what you imagine to start with because it is organic and you should be ready to think on your feet mm-hmm. I think it's very to be too rigid about how, how you think it should be when something happens because 
you know, I mean, again, I, I use the commitments as an example, but because the commitments was was a film that uh, was so organic because of the the brilliance of the kids in it. That once they started, and bear in mind, in every scene I had 12 people. 12 people to cover, 12 people to change the line, 12 people to get the line wrong, 12 people to be good or bad or indifferent, as they often were with 12. 12 that's the hardest thing to, to direct. And, uh, and when they started to, when they, I let them fly towards the end of the movie, when they were getting comfortable, and they improvised, the movie becomes so much better because of them. Even though it was really closely scripted, actually, some of the you know the better lines were nothing to do with me or the writers, but became, it came out of them at that moment in time. Mostly, it included the word "fuck." Okay, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you've you've led us nicely onto uh, the commitments, and the sequence here we're going to look at is uh, is the opening audition sequence. And uh, not that I'm obsessed with numbers, but because I said he might his features only need to be. 50 pages long. In this, the sequence is uh, six minutes screen time and eight pages. So actually, you know, it is all quite, it's very tightly scripted. You could almost be accused to, of it being radio when you read it first. And it's, it's quite the opposite. So if you run for us there, Simon, please. Brilliant. I know we're biased, but just it's a brilliant script, uh, brilliantly, brilliantly told, and it's got such heart and warmth, and um, we don't recognise anybody in that cast, do we? Or are there a couple there you might... Have... Lance, are you here at all? This snotty-nosed harmonica player here. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. I didn't recognise you at all. So when we say, uh, where are they now, you can say they've gone on to become... Um, become directors. Feature directors. Um, you exude a strength in directing non-actors. What do you like about it? I mean, it's, it's hard work. Um, you don't know what you're going to get, do you? You don't know. I mean, uh, the, the, one of the pleasures of, of every film is that uh, I try to do, um, wherever I am, whether it be Mississippi or Philadelphia or here in Dublin, is to, do, is to try and do an open call. Because you go through the whole process of seeing all the actors from all the agents, and you think you've seen everyone, and you desperately think that the next person's going to come in who's going to be great. And uh, but the open call is wonderful because um, it gives you ideas to use. Nearly all of those vignettes uh, came out of the open call we did at the Mansion House here in Dublin. The kids, in other words, the, the eccentricity of all those things was the, excent- <coughs> the eccentricity of that day. You know, now with Simon Cowell and X Factor, who's stolen the whole thing. Yes. Um, <laughs> they, they get programme after programme of it. But uh, the great thing about doing an open call is, one, you get really good ideas and you get fantastic people who can play smaller parts and also fantastic extras, the quality of the extras. So it allows you to cast the quality of the extras and things. So that's why I quite like doing the open call. The open call is, is uh, I just always look forward to it wherever I I've been anywhere in the world. I've always done it. Sometimes you get more things out of it than others, but it's a great, you know, sense of. And in, in terms of teasing out a performance with uh, with people like that, I, again, in my experience of a couple of times of having worked with non-actors. You know, because they haven't learned the craft. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, two different examples I've had to say one young actor um, who it took me ages to work out that he had dyslexia. So if there was a script change, there would be a, oh, he would start to sweat if the mm. pink page arrived on the day. And the other was trying to uh, just a habit that uh, that a young actress that I had was working with uh, that, that, that I was working with that she had that I couldn't 
break, uh, just a particular rhythm she had. And if there was a word change, she just, it really threw her. And that was because she had a photographic memory and she had learnt yep. the script. And she'd even learnt the stage directions. And it really, if, so it takes a while to learn the ticks of, of, uh, of an actor. And when they're professionals, you know, they, um, uh, you, you kind of tend to, tend to know those things already because somebody else has told you. But, but learning those things um, on set with new actors, I mean, how do you, if you're not getting what you want, how do you tease out a performance? Well, I, I'm, I'm always have been of the, of the opinion that if the performance is not there, you're not going to get it, no matter how brilliant you are. Okay. What you can do is to create an environment where anyone can be of their best. That's the most you can ever do. And you can put your arm around an actor and take them into the corner and talk to them for hours. And, and, and if they're not going to get it, they're not going to get it. Here's the truth. But if you create an environment, if you have an actor who is nervous, and I always think that, uh, you know, they look at that board, and if that board suddenly gets beyond number 20 in takes, they will get, it. They will get nervous, whether it be, uh, you know, Robert De Niro or a complete unknown. So the secret always is to say, fine, yeah, we've got that, let's move on. And you move on and you move the camera six inches to the right. Okay. <clears throat> and you start all over again with the slate at one. Okay. And it's okay. amazing how much uh, courage fascinating. That, that gives them. <laughs> because they, uh, the other thing with non-actors, you know, you know, we were talking earlier about the fact that uh, the thing about directors is that uh, that sort of situations like this is that most of us don't know how other directors work. Mm. And it's, you know, I've always said, I knew that... Um, we all say action and uh, cut. And, uh, and if you're from the National Theatre, you say one more time, darling. <laughs> but uh, apart from that, we don't know what we all do. Yeah. <clears throat> For instance, you know, when I, I, I always talk over the take. Do you? And uh, it, it, someone said to me, no, they've never seen that done, particularly with children. I talk over and I talk over and I give them a line read and I never cut the camera. I always run and run and run and run. Because in the end, although the sound people are so sort of neurotic about it, in the end it's ultimately very easy to cut you out. And, but, but what you do is you keep... You don't, the worst thing of all is cut it. The whole mechanics that happens the moment you cut, 50 people move. Mm-hmm. And... And all sorts of things have got to go. And it's amazing that uh, you could, and it almost, and if you, if you say cut, almost certainly you're going to have to reload. Mm-hmm. So don't cut, say cut. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you can, and because of just talking over on the take, um, it, which is something that I've always done, and I've done it, uh, you know, I did it uh, all my career, and then uh, I did it with De Niro. And he went, what? He, no one had ever done that before. Mm-hmm. Like, whilst he was in the middle of his performance, yeah. I spoke. And he was always used to the, the absolute rule that you're supposed to say, cut. And then you get, but I never did. I said, I just said, do it again. And he'll say, we're going to put another, I said, no, just do it again. We'll find it on the slate. How, it, and it, it's interesting now because obviously everything is gone so digital, you know, if you're shooting well, no, if anyone's are lucky enough to be shooting on film you're hearing every second to go, go through the gate so, so some crews would say that the younger directors develop incredibly bad habits by not cutting or speaking over tape, yeah. but I'm glad to hear now that actually no, that's no, not I necessarily a bad habit yeah. um, so I was going to say when do you give up in a performance but your point is you don't you have tricks, you don't as such give up, you the thing is, you truthfully, in your heart, you ought to know when you've got it. And mostly you do. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you can think you've got something quite that's, you know, whatever that magical thing that you're seeking. Um, it, 
it's not there when you see the rushes. At other times you didn't think you'd get it and something really special has happened that only occurs when you see it on, on film or whatever. I, can, can you give me an example in that case of, um, of basically where you took a chance, maybe around you didn't agree, that you trusted your gut in a casting session and it was... It, you know, it, it, it produced magic and also the other way around where actually you trusted your gut and your gut, yeah. your gut was wrong that day. Um, I don't know. I, I'm sure there are many examples which, of course, my mind goes blank when you think. Yeah, no, well, I was thinking, you're talking about, uh, there's a guy uh, called Pruitt Vince who was, plays one of the... Uh, I first met him in New Orleans uh, on Angel Heart. I cast him as a detec- detective. And I used him in about three or four films after that. And... Um, uh, I used it. He, in fact, in Mississippi Burning, he plays one of the murderers, and uh, he uh, he's uh, he would never have the script in front of him when I read or anything, or uh, when I used to change something, I would change, uh, you know, on because I do write whilst filming, I would rework the, a speech for him and give it to him, and it gave him the fear of God, similar to what you said, because. I found he was, he's actually certifiably blind. Mm. Can you believe that? Mm. He had, he, I knew he used to wear really thick glasses, mm. but uh, he couldn't see the page. So he had to learn it off by heart. But also that meant that he was actually pretty good at improvising because he was always ready to yes. cover his tracks because he didn't mm. really want to be faced with actually giving the, the written word as such. You know. But uh, that doesn't really answer the question about taking chances. Sometimes you can, you know, uh, I think that, if you don't get the casting right, you're probably not going to get the, the, the scene right. Because I think that uh, if you're going to put effort... I know that you know, the old cliché is that you know, it's prepare, 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 and then the actual shooting is a very tiny part of what you do. But your preparation is everything. And uh, I think that casting is hugely important. I think that uh, you know, I've always probably spent and have been lucky to have, been, have a disproportionate amount of time in how I was casting because uh, how long to find because you always think that tomorrow someone else will come through the door particularly when you're looking for unknowns like with particularly with like with children for instance on um, a film like Angela's Ashes is a classic example of that also the other thing is that uh, that you so rarely have the opportunity of rehearsal I mean most feature films are so expensive that the actual process of having everybody in the same room is very difficult because it costs a lot of money to keep people, you know. In fact, the only film I ever did, the most thorough rehearsals on, believe it or not, was The Commitments. Because The Commitments, because the kids weren't expensive as an item, mm. um, you know, and there were the support mechanism, which was very different to Madonna and Evita, was that, uh, you know, which was basically, it meant a minicab, and we had to give them a mobile phone because none of them had any phones either. Um, but that, there was something wonderful about that in that, uh, you know, we went through this process because we had to do music rehearsals, because we had to put a whole lot of songs into rehearsals, see what we could cope with and what we couldn't, is that um, I had six weeks of rehearsal, drama rehearsals, which I had never had on any film I ever did before. Okay, so you're not, you don't tend, therefore, to rehearse, 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 or you don't fall victim of over-rehearsing just because of... I've never had the opportunity, really. I mean, uh, you know, I met on Mississippi Burning, I, I, you know, spent a day, which was the day before we started shooting, basically, Mm. um, with Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe, and we would read through. 
but it's not rehearsals, it's really reading through to discuss what that scene means and things like that. It's an intellectual exercise as opposed to of being of help to you with the commitments. By the time we finish rehearsal, we could do it. We could do the whole of the commitments screenplay as a play. They knew everything from the very beginning to the end. And the other thing which was really fantastic is that I had a lot of... uh, I had three girls who were brilliant and a lot of the boys who were not so brilliant because they were chosen because they were musicians or they were absolutely the part. Mm. And they hadn't hadn't really the acting chops to to be able to do it, Uh, you know. Andrew Strong, for instance, his voice was so extraordinary, I took the chance, even though he, was, he would have been way down the list with regards to his abilities as an actor. And in the rehearsal, it was obvious that he wasn't able to cope. He didn't get it. And so what I did, which is, I've never done before, was that I swapped, in rehearsal, I swapped all the lines around. And instead of... So I gave to Maria Doyle uh, Andrew Strong's lines mm-hmm. and Glenn Hansard's lines that I gave, gave to Brona Gallagher or whatever. And the girls, because they were more accomplished, read those lines, and it was amazing to see on the faces of the boys when they hear their own lines, which they've been doing over and over again, delivered in a totally different way that, that really hit the money. And then, because they were musicians, they heard it, and they heard the intonation and the rhythm, and they started to, to get it. They got it in a way that they would never get, even if we'd have been there for three months rehearsing, they would never have got it. But well, interesting. That. And was that just an idea that occurred to you, out of frustration? You know, you're hearing the same rhythm again and again in rehearsal. And it's frustrating when, yeah, when, and also... Uh, because we're know, all going to steal that. They didn't, by the way. It's, not, it's not fair. You know, someone like Andrew Strong had no pretensions to be an actor. Yeah. It was me who put him in that situation. Yeah. He was 16 years of age, and he came in by chance because we, we had a whole lot of songs in rehearsal, a uh, separate exercise of, of me choosing a whole lot of songs that I didn't know if, they were, if we could play them as well. I know that Otis Redding could do them, but I didn't know if we could do them, mm-hmm. even with our session band. And uh, it was um, uh, Rob Strong, who was Andrew's dad, who was actually the person who was singing the songs at that moment mm-hmm. in time. It was an mm-hmm. exercise on choosing songs, nothing to do with the film itself, actually, the actual you know, choosing of actors. And then he, could, he, he couldn't come one day at a gig, and so he sent along his son. And his son was 16 years of age, and I, I heard that voice. And you, as a director, you'd be pretty stupid not to think mm-hmm. that. You've never, I had never heard mm-hmm. anyone of that age sing that well. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I said to him, would you like, would you, I just want to sit with you for a bit. And he said, okay. I said, I, I want to read with you. And reading is not his thing. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, the term of reading a script is called read with you. And he, called, he thought I was going to read like, you know, I don't know, Alice in Wonderland or something. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, he wasn't, he was the, one of the worst of all the kids I had in mind to cast from the point of view of how many marks you might give him out of ten for acting. Mm. But in the end, you think, the magic of what that voice is, it's my job to make him into an actor. And what I did was, not just that exercise of the rehearsal period, I took away loads of his lines and gave them to to the girls or someone else who were more able to deliver them. So if you look at his performance in the film, it's minimal with regards to what line he might have to say. Because... It wasn't his thing. His thing yeah. was a, he was a genius singer, not. But, a, but cleverly, the ego of his character, which is uh, well, it, that's it, true. It takes yeah. up the space, yeah. so you, you, you don't yeah. you don't particularly notice that he's not speaking. Um, I mean, are you? Uh, 
again, famous for getting great performances out of children. And I included the opening sequence, the establishing sequence there of where the rabbits live because it isn't on script and uh, it just has such a sense of naturalism. It could be grim and it could be depressing, kids playing in the... And that's a, that Dublin is, was on the eve of the, the Celtic Tiger. But all those kids that, again... I mean, how did you approach that? It, it feels very, very documentary. It could have felt superfluous. It could have felt, you know, quite um, uh, judgmental. But it has such heart. Again, um, the, the, you know, those performances of, of the children. Again, I know that's quite different to say the performances of the children in Angela's yeah. Ashes. But it's still, you are dealing... How do you talk to children? Um. Well, you know, again, the, the casting process allows you... All of those kids that you see there weren't randomly found. Every one of them had been cast. Really? Every one of them had come in for other roles or other things. And so I liked that particular kid, so, I, you know, and, he, and whatever. I also I did a lot of... Uh, um, I went to all of these places. Obviously, I mean, you know, that was shot in Dondale, which you also you all know. And you could see something... You know, like the Alsatian dog on top of the, yeah. the metal container, which is actually a shop, is, an ex- is, is, a, is a shocking image. But I didn't invent it, I saw it. But what you do is, I saw that not in Darndown. Mm. And then when I was in Ballymun, I, uh, I, I thought I saw something on a balcony. And someone told me a story about, uh, you know, a pony that was up on one of the balconies. Mm. <laughs> and out of that came an totally exaggerated thing of a horse going up there in the lift, you know, and and, uh, in Lafrenet wrote the line, you know, he says, you're not taking that that, that animal in the lift or something, he says, and he says, yeah, the the stairs are killing. uh, But it was a huge horse. The horse could never go in the lift. And it was nothing, it was probably a very small goat that someone Mm -hmm. saw up on Mm -hmm. one of those Mm -hmm. things. But from that, the whole mythology of that and this... I, when the person told me the story, the location manager told me the story about the fact that, you know, they have, they have animals up there. And I, did, I said, I don't believe you. He said, yeah, they have horses, they have... And uh, so out of that, I wrote that scene, which is a funny... I, you know, the situation... Ian wrote the scene, not me, but the actual situation. I said, I saw this block of flats and there's animals on the uh, balcony. I didn't actually see them on the balcony. It was a story that the location manager told me. And as you know, nothing is to be trusted in in this country with regards to stories. (laughs) But... um, but to, to, to answer you, with all those, that, that documentary thing at the beginning was an amalgam of lots and lots of different places okay. that I'd been to looking for locations. The thing about the, the, the commitments is that it was not meant to be... I used the whole of Dublin, mm. and I, wherever I could find an interesting mm. location, I used it, and we moved all the time. And uh, so you, you have this patchwork of, to make up a place that becomes, to most people who don't know Dublin or, mm. or the north mm. side or Kilbarrack, <laughs> Kilbarrack, which is what it's meant to be, mm. because if I'd have filmed the whole thing as Roddy Doyle's novella asked for, it would have actually been quite dull. And also, I mean, Roddy Doyle's first TV drama was Family, which was set in Ballymun, and there was yeah. B- the BBC made it, and there was war after that. Really? In terms of the people of Ballymun felt all that ever gets shown um, in our neighbourhood is kind of yeah. domestic abuse. It's and that it was kind yeah. of a negative imagery. So, um, so uh, I mean, you don't do any favours for uh, Board Falcha. Um, uh, the look of, the, 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 I'm sure they would say, the look of Dublin, but it has such heart in it. That's what, and uh, I mean, yourself, your uh, kind of your working class roots, it feels like something's coming from, uh, it, it's, it's coming from somewhere very, um, very grounded and very, uh, very. Um, 
tender? Is that too well, early a word to use? Everything that I saw I thought would actually make a nice, interesting observation in a film, but it was not to be patronising. It was because mm. I, I loved it. Mm. I grew up in a block of flats not too dissimilar from Ballymun. Mm. You know, not as tall, but almost as tall. And, uh, you know, they call them council flats in England. But uh, they, uh, so, I, no, I didn't want to be patronising. But they, I loved those kids. And I also, um, you know, the, the, uh, someone asked me about when, I, when I, did, I did Fame, which was uh, eight main characters. And at the end of, the f- of Fame, which was 18 weeks of filming, it was a very long film to shoot. At the end of the film, I wanted to murder at least seven of the eight. <laughs> and, uh, and now, you know, the 12 kids in the commitments, if they came in now, I wouldn't, I'd just, I'd cuddle and kiss yeah. them because it was impossible not to like them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you, you do that, if you, you hope a little bit of that love is seen, comes through on the film, really. Well, it, it, it certainly is. It does uh, feel like a love-in. And as I say, having worked with Maria Doyle Kennedy, she, you know, raved, raves about you. I'm going to, we're going to move now to um, a very different piece of work, um, a film that uh, is directly responsible for my uh, choice of drug in all airports being uh, simply a gin and tonic, uh, Midnight Express. Um, and... There's so much to talk about with this film, but I'm going to keep it to the scenes that every director, well, most directors, and often the actors as well, dread. The fight sequence or the sex scene. And um, I'm just going to um, show two different clips. We'll start with, um, with uh, the, uh, a very graphic, dramatic fight scene, which is kind of at the end of, uh, of Act 2. And... Um, yeah, um, and then we just talk a little about directing violence and directing sex. Do you want to put this sequence in context? This is, uh, scene is it? this is where um, Brad effectively loses just before he's sent off to um, to uh, uh, section, section thirteen. 13 yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What speaks? You. I, I, yeah, I, I, I forget it. Okay. <laughs> it. It speaks for itself. <laughs> So, even how many years? 88, 98. God, is that right? 32 years later? 88, 90. Yeah, yeah it is. 77. Yeah, I mean, uh, it still feels, uh, feels very contemporary and very brutal and frightening, even though we're often accused as audiences that we've become desensitised to violence. Mm. Um, in a film with lots of violent scenes, and um, how did you approach that sequence? Um, it, well, the, the actual fight itself was um, quite. Um, it was choreographed, and I spent. Uh, um, it, we, it, the thing about the film was that it was uh, it was six days a week we shot, and we, it was the whole thing was done in fifty three days. So it was quite a, it was quite a hard film in that regard. We had one day off every, you know, on our seventh day, and that's when I and I spent the whole day with um, the stunt. Uh, arranger and uh, Brad just uh, working out where it would be with this area to that area. We then rigged because certain things had to be rigged you know, the knife has to be rigged to show blood mm. uh, the whole of the, the washstand thing had to be rigged to fall apart because mm. it, it would not come apart like that, you know, however crazy Brad would be getting out of control um, the, 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 uh, there's two stuntmen they're doubling as well as the two actors. So it's a matter of combining the two. The secret of it, which is why it probably still looks 
modern is that it's all handheld at a time when people didn't handhold. And it was, um, you know, it was a Arriflex BL camera, which is quite a heavy camera to handhold, but it was, had a particularly good operator who was very good at that. And so all of that, in fact, a great deal of, of Midnight Express is handheld, which makes it look not so rigid and, and not so period. Because, of course, this was pre-Steadicam, wasn't it, as well? Oh, yeah. Yes, oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you were effectively yeah. forging new, new ground with going... Well, people did handheld, but not yeah, to but do that kind yes. of sequence. People probably wouldn't have attempted that before. But because the, I, I had a particularly brilliant... Uh, in fact, we made our own special wooden mount, which was like... Mm-hmm. Which, is, uh, uh, which we put a camera on at the time, although this was not... We didn't use it for this, but... Uh, um, I had to have a camera operator who had very, very mm-hmm. strong shoulders and, and was very good at it, so allowed us to do these things. But it was it was quite carefully choreographed, and then. Um, so I mean, I know this is a boring question, but like, how many how many slates? Like, how many setups? Can, I mean, I know that's a long time ago to remember, but I mean, it was quite it, a, lot, a huge yeah. amount of coverage. It seems, and it every shot me, earns its place. Yeah. And his journey, his emotional journey. It took a day and maybe a bit more of the next day to do. Mm. So it would have been at least 30 or 40. And did anyone get hurt during the... No, what was interesting is uh, there was a horrible uh, thing happened just prior, the scene when they're all lined up. Mm -hmm. Uh, The guy who plays the the sort of sadistic guard was actually an Israeli-American called Paul Smith. And uh, I, which is really addresses a bit of your question, really, is that uh, I had a lot of problems with him because although he was taken aside by the, the stunt supervisor to, to teach him how to hit people without hurting them, he was incapable of of and uh, of not hurting people. And I had to keep saying to him, you know, this is film. This is not real. This is an illusion, and we mustn't hurt one another. This is, you know, we are professionals. And a number of times he did it, and uh, he hurt Brad a lot when Brad had to have his feet smacked with a falaka stick, and uh, mm-hmm. he was meant to hold back, but he didn't. And uh, a number of other instances happened. And in that scene that you just saw, um, I was particularly angry with him because Paolo Bonicelli, who plays Rifki, Italian actor, had false eyes. He had uh, contact lenses to cloud over his eyes, mm-hmm. and he had false teeth, you know, bad mm-hmm. teeth. Mm-hmm. And, and Paul Smith's got big, fat hands. And I said to him, you must hold back when you smack him on the face. Because if you break those contacts, mm. you could blind him. Mm. So you're not talking about, oh, this is a, a movie and we're doing a scene. You're talking about, you know, causing serious harm to someone. And he did it. And I was very angry with him. And I said to him, Paul, you've hurt him. You hit him. You meant to hold back. And the stump guy shows him again how to hold back to, you know, mm-hmm. kid it. And uh, he said, I didn't hit him. I didn't hurt him at all. And Paolo went... <laughs> and all his teeth had been broken by the smack of this man's hand because he was an enormous man. And then that was the first situation in the same day. And then he goes down a thing and he goes... He grabs... Uh, you saw it by, John Hurt by the glasses. We, we, that's what he was meant to do. Yeah. Um... In rehearsal, uh, John Hurt had a little wispy beard. And instead of doing the glasses, he grabbed the hairs and we all went, ah! He snapped the hairs out of his thing. And John Hurt went absolutely apeshit, saying, you know, Mm. you're not an actor, you're a thug. And uh, we're all actors and you've got to... to, uh, 
you yeah. know. So uh, your responsibility as a director in a situation like that... People are being hurt. Yeah, yeah. And normally it's I've gone too far a number to, of times yes. as a director. There's a scene in there in the, when they go to Section 13, which actually the extras in that scene are, are people from the mental hospital in, yeah. in Malta. And I was asking these sad people to do things uh, which was out of... It, it was... And the, the second assistant, young assistant, said to me, Governor, you've gone too far. And I went, oh, my God, you're right. Because you use... These are not, they're not actors and they're not extras. These yeah. are people from a, from a hospital. Yeah. And I'm using that because, you know, all I'm thinking of, oh, it's a great shot. Yeah, but actually yeah. you've got to think, no, it can't be that. These are people. And you can't, even if you think that it's for your art... You've got to treat people slightly differently. And because I've you done felt that. it humiliated them, is it, that in that? Because it is very powerful. When I was watching it, I was going, wow, that's amazing casting, but that they're real is... The thing that upset me, I did, I've had a number of occasions like this where I've gone too far, and it's like... I did a scene in... Uh, I did a film called Birdie, and there's a scene where there's two kids just jump in Philadelphia. They just jump off of a trolley. Two black kids. And uh, they just have to jump... And I thought it didn't, it, was, it had no dynamic, and I wanted it to be faster. So I asked them to speed up the trolley. And they did, and the kids jumped, and they said, and they had a little bit of a job getting their, these were very fit kids, had a job keeping their footing. And then I did the scene, and I said, turn faster. And they both fell, and they ripped the skin all off their arms, uh, which, if you've seen a black person when they lose their skin it's very horrible to see because you can you know it's just mm. and uh, they were okay the kids they were very good about it and I felt I didn't sleep that night because I thought that's me trying to be a fancy schmancy film director and you've hurt someone you know now, mm. or, so I, to answer your question whenever you're dealing with violence mm. is it is violent mm. and but it is a, it's meant to be an illusion mm. and yet sometimes it is impossible for people not to get mm. hurt, you know. I mean, you hear stories of stuntmen dying, you know, but I mean... Well, I, you know, the, the, the other side of the same coin is directing lo a lovemaking scene or, or, or sex. And I have a scene here which is, I suppose, sex in a, a broader definition of it. You have two wonderful um, love sex scenes in this film, mm. the gay scene in the shower and... Um, and, oh, yeah. and this film, I, I'm, I'm, I'll probably, Simon, stop the scene, uh, I'll call an early out on it. Um, but by contrast to the other, to the violence scene, which has massive coverage, etc., this is much more simply blocked, and I'm interested in how you approach this. I'm just going to cut that short because of our time, and I um, just want to talk to you about it. I mean, I find that a really difficult scene to, to watch, just where both characters are, where Billy is... Uh, Emotionally, that scene, it's just, it's, it's kind of, it's humiliating, it's, uh, you know, it, it, as, as, the, as the story demands of it. But, I mean, where was that on the schedule? How do you approach a scene that most probably, you're, are you dreading it, or the actress dreading it? Because in my experience, sex is always an issue. Yeah, And what absolutely. people agree to before, on their contract, or before you start, it's suddenly, there are issues on, on set. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, that is a very important issue. You have to make that very, very clear at the very beginning. It's interesting because when I was casting for this particular part, every, in, every actress, mostly in Los Angeles and New York where, where I did the casting, um, the actresses always say to you beforehand when you're doing the casting process, you know, 
it, you know, they've read the scene, which was pretty explicit in how it was written. Mm. It um, is, um, and a lot of the problems come when the scene isn't explicitly written, and then you start to say, "Well, you know," we say, "Well, that would, because I interpret that differently. I didn't yes. think I had to take my yeah. clothes off." Yeah. But it was very explicit, and um, the the question almost every. Uh, actress said to me when I was doing the audition sequences is that do you want me to take my top off when I do the audition and I always used to say uh, if you feel that you need to then fine um, it's, uh, it's not dependent but on if you don't want to then don't I said you know it's, 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 it's also fine you know and, uh, um, and it's interesting because one of the producers uh, on a lighter note uh, whose name I won't mention used to say to me do you know the ones that take their tops off perhaps they should see the producer as well after being through the director <laughs> but uh, it is it's a voyeur you can't not be a voyeur you know one has to be grown up about it the thing is if they uh, she was one Ari Miracle who she won the Golden Globe for that believe it or not best uh, uh, newcomer and uh, no one ever saw her again I don't think she ever acted again but um she was uh, quite. F- she was not when in during the re- during the audition sequence. She was quite you know open about doing it, and she did mm. take her top off and things. So I knew that I wouldn't. I wasn't kidding her that she was doing it one way, and then uh, the, and and all of the trouble comes when you the last minute. You say, well, it's not how I see it. You have to make it really clear from the very beginning, because they have every right to say no. You know, yeah. it's. Um, and what about uh, Brad? Because I think on you know what what he has to do as well as you know while we don't. See well, he flesh, went a bit loony. You know, making the film. What was really interesting is because um, the. Uh, we did publicity afterwards with the real Billy Hayes, and they became really good friends. And Billy Hayes, the real Billy Hayes, thought he was... He did, he became a celebrity because of the nature of the film, because of the film. And uh, he started to behave like a movie star. And uh, 53 days of making the film in this horrible prison, uh, Brad Davis started to behave like someone who had, you know smuggled drugs and done four years in Turkish prison and so he did take it rather seriously and he was you know of the particular school of American acting that really has to suffer before they can do it and he was absolutely apprehensive about doing this scene and it was playing on his mind for weeks and also she would not play along with him in that she you know he wanted to you know in the evenings to read with her you know read with her act this scene out I guess and um, she wouldn't didn't want to do that at all she just wanted to do it on the day and uh, the day came to do it and I started and from a film point of view from a shooting point of view you're in a tiny little box you can only do over the shoulder and you can go closer perhaps or you can do on a hand or whatever but basically there's not a lot you can do also the the most important thing about the whole scene is that it is sex with a piece of glass in the middle it's about touching someone but not touching them and that's really what makes it very powerful because the other factor which you bring up is when you are doing those sex scenes is that you've got two people doing a sex scene but there's all of us now is all of you uh, 50 people which is or is it just you know the minimum people needed when I did Angel Heart uh, with Mickey Rourke and uh, Lisa Bonet, there's a very powerful sex scene where the whole ceiling bl- you know, rains blood on them. And uh, this had to happen and, uh, during the filming. And uh, not to change the subject from that, but it's a, it's a problem that you bring up, is that uh, 
you know, you, the whole crew are outside on a, on a balcony and we were in this tiny little bedroom. And uh, just myself, the cinematographer, the camera, opera- camera operator and the focus puller. That's really the minimum of people that need and me. And uh, the thing started to happen and uh, it, it started to be not, a f- not filmic but actually quite real. <laughs> so then you're... Pr- should I, you know, you can either throw a bucket of water over yeah. the two of them or you can carry on filming. So yes, you know, yes. we carried on filming. By the way, just to finish that story, yes. when we got back after he'd finished being drunk and he'd, yeah. he'd sobered up, we had two cameras, which were there's an Ariflex BL camera, and we had already, one had already broken, and we were in Malta, and so we were away from any kind of facilities. And as we came back on the very first take, the second camera broke. So we had to abandon the whole day's work and come back the next day. Um, just before I leave, there's, there's so much interesting stuff to talk about in the script in this film, which I know uh, Paddy will be, will be bringing up with you. But how do you like to schedule? Like, where do you put the scenes you dread and the scenes you like? Do you kind of give yourself an easy start or the psychology of a schedule? Because so much is, once that first AD gets his hands or, you know, it starts, oh, I know, yeah. you know and, yeah. Like well, I, when, when I speak to, to, to writers, I always warn them: never write montage. Write, you know. But we always, when you, it's not about you thinking that you've got a movie done in your head, or in your, the one in the movie that was in your head is starting to be achieved. It, everyone gets, you know. There's a sense about a certain point on a film where people start to think, well, this is going to be quite good or whatever. Mm. And um, I suppose the reverse could occur too. But you really have to get into it and feel that. That, it, that there's something happening that can be good. And, and the actors, more than anyone else, have to feel that, really. They have mm. to feel that they, what they're doing is, is of some significance be, before they do something that is this dangerous with regards to this kind of scene, dangerous emotionally for them. Okay. And so I think that you know, this was done quite late on, but not towards the absolute yes. end. Um, gosh, I have so many more questions, and I am running out of time. Paddy's been very good to me there. Just before we conclude, are there any specific questions from people in the, um, in the audience about anything we've seen? Yeah, Timmy. Okay, just something else that uh, Michael Apton mentioned before about, he talked about really just lying to people to get what he needed. He talked about going too far. Uh, is there a sense that sometimes, as insane as we are as our actors, mm. The shot is the most important thing in the world, and it's sell your granite to get that shot. And, yeah. And, and how do you keep yourself in check, and how do you stop yourself turning into that monster? Well, I think you don't. I mean, there is something about a monster in all of us who do that job, really. And you have to be selfish, because if you're not, then you're the only one who is actually supposedly has the film in the back of your head. And you behave sometimes, uh, yeah, not in a very decent manner, you know. I mean, I happen to know that Apted is an extraordinary gentleman from the beginning to end of any movie. I don't know that I could characterise myself in that way. And I think that a lot of us behave very badly. Um, funny enough, you behave badly mostly when you're, most, when you're full of fear. And every director, at any given point in a movie, there is a point, a moment, when you're scared. And you're scared because you're not quite sure how you're going to do it. And it comes from total exhaustion, in my opinion, most of the time, because it's physically so hard and mentally so difficult. There comes a point when uh, there's not a day, there's not a film that you do, and I think that most directors would agree to this, where there is not one day when you get there in that morning where you're not sure what to do. Where, Where every shot you think of seems to be wrong. And, and, and finally, and I promise I'm wrapping, I'm avoiding eye contact here, um, uh, 
on that. It's like, you know, and it's refreshing to hear, even still, with all your experience, you still feel that fear in the, in the pit of your stomach. The Guild is just 10 years old, kind of babies, in a way. But have you any advice for, for us directors from your point of view? No, I think, uh, you know, I, just the normal cliches, really. I mean, in the end, uh, you have to be truthful to yourself. If you have a vision of how that film should be, um, and w- what excited you and exhilarated you about in the first place about what it is that you saw in the back of your head that could be wonderful you've got to be truthful to it because there are so many times and so many moments and so many other pressures that are going to push you off course and it doesn't matter if you're Monty Scorsese or Steven Spielberg there are so many things that can make it become something slightly different someone said to me you know that uh, you know if you're making a movie the ones that work are when everybody, say it's a crew of a hundred, when a hundred people are making the same film and they have the same film in their head. And a bad film is when a hundred people have almost the same film but slightly different in their head. And uh, then it can go wrong. So in the end, your courage to keep to what you want to see when you are being bombarded by the financial pressures, the time pressures, time being the most difficult thing, you know, you're forever a life you know, you're, you're a time and motion person most of the time, you're forever looking at your watch, will you get down the day, all the problems of difficulties of actors or whatever, all those things that all of us have on every film, in the end to the stamina to keep true to your original vision is the most important thing and on that time and motion, we have gone into overtime. <laughs> With apologies, thank you all for staying late. And uh, we are going to take a short break, five-minute break, and then Paddy will be back. With thank you. Thank you for listening to SDGI Directors and Dialogue. For more information on the Screen Directors Guild of Ireland, visit us at www.sdgi.ie.